0: What we do basically at Future Africa is we design roadmaps for the future and then we invest in the companies that fit our roadmap. Mm. So we're not like your typical investor who's fishing for ideas. Mm. We know what we're looking looking for and we just wait for the company that either is willing to adapt to fit our roadmap for the future or is already implementing our roadmap for the future.
1: Hello and welcome to The Experience Pod. The Experience Pod is a 30-minute one-on-one interview-led podcast that discusses the adoption and utilization of relevant emerging technologies and trends for impact-oriented professionals, researchers, developers, and students who demand realistic and thought-provoking perspectives on the opportunities and challenges presented by these phenomena in our unique environment. My name is Dr. Damola Oladusu and I work on the disruption team at the PwC Experience Center. I'm super excited about this episode as we launch our three-part series on building the future, where we would explore topics ranging from building local startups and communities to investing for social impact in Nigeria and Africa. We start the series with Ingi Aboyeji, the CEO of Future Africa, to share his perspectives and analogies on community development in Africa. Welcome, Ingi.
0: Thank you.
1: Okay, so we'll get right into it. Your most recent job title is the founder of Future Africa. Could you give us an overview of what the organization does?
0: Absolutely. So Future of Africa basically originally kicked off as a community in conversation about the future. And the idea at the time was, you know, I had just come out of this experience of doing two back-to-back successful startups, and I was in very reflective mood and thinking about what does the next, you know, 100 years look like. Not just for me but really for the ecosystem and what i was most interested in at the time was in having these conversations about how people saw um the future and so that's where we started myself Nike and Georgia started putting out a bunch of articles and curating a bunch of closed events where we had these conversations but then as we went on we realized that it wasn't just enough for us to have conversations we absolutely have to start building and so we've evolved now from just a uh, what would you call a media platform, to basically becoming uh, something akin to an investment platform. And Mm -hmm. the idea basically for us is how do you build this organization that is supporting innovators who are building a future where purpose and prosperity is within everyone's reach? How do you help them build that future? How do you make it possible for them to scale and to define today the way some of the companies we've been involved in, like Andela and Flutterwave, have technically define the future that we live in today? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you scale that impact essentially? Mm -hmm. So that's a question we try to answer every day. We have three tools at our disposal for doing so. The first is capital. So we offer $50,000 in equity to up to 20 companies a year for up to 10% of equity. So we don't take more than 10% of your equity, no matter what. And then we have our coaching platform where we prepare innovators along a rubric. That we kind of have we call it the td3 rubric so our first is talent you know basically helping interested talent get passionate about something and we start that super early you know engaging even down to primary school kids and mm-hmm. like how do they think about the future mm-hmm. um, then we have data where we help them you know just talented people collect data about mm-hmm. problems in their society how big is it mm-hmm. what are people willing to pay to fix it who's mm-hmm. willing to pay to fix it mm-hmm. what kind of value add exists? And basically just get to understand the environment and the markets that they need to operate in and how they can build businesses um, and solutions to those problems and then then we have design where we help them build the right kind of solution to the problem um, and then ultimately we also have uh, distribution where we help them build the channel partnerships and distribution models that help their whatever solution they've created to scale mm-hmm. so basically we coach our startups community along that and then the last thing is community for us, what is critical is for us to be able to build this ecosystem around our businesses and innovators, channel partners who can take them to market, venture capitalists who can fund down, down the line, skill. partners, researchers, talent, government, whoever they need to be able to build a successful business. We try to pull into our community and serve up to our innovators.
1: Okay, interesting. So you mentioned that the platform started as a community for like-minded change makers, basically, right? If we look at your experience, you've gained a lot of experience in sort of building these community-type businesses, or at least that approach, and you've done it online and offline, right? I'm curious as to what you've seen, especially in terms of architecture and governance, on the similarities and differences between these online and offline communities,
0: yeah. Um, I mean, I tend to think of online and offline communities as one thing, as opposed to two different things. Okay. Like it's ultimately about connecting people. Okay. And typically the way you reach them is, is online, but ultimately the way you consummate the transaction is offline, right? Because trust needs to be built. And, so, and sometimes also you can initiate conversations through a channel offline, and then you can now convert them online and then ultimately consummate the transaction in person. But the key thing I've learned is really about understanding the differences between centralized channels and decentralized communities. Um, And and always having that perspective when you kind of try and design communities. Can
1: you touch a little bit more on that?
0: Yeah, so for example, uh, if I use the idea of Andela, right? When we started Andela, the idea was, look, let's get everybody we train into one location so they can have a certain kind of experience. But in that experience, the idea was also for us to be able to learn in real time what people who would have to go through this experience positively mm-hmm. um, need to experience. So the idea was if we didn't do a physical class, if we tried to do a MOOC, it would have been a different kind of program, mm-hmm. um, which we wanted to be able to feel what people felt mm-hmm. when they had the program. And in person, like, just like I can see your face, I can see whether you're feeling what mm-hmm. I'm talking about or not, right? Then once we had some general kind of what we call them checklists, or check boxes for the kind of experience a particular reaction would elicit. Mm-hmm. We were basically able to then take that online through the Andela learning community and build this nationwide community that basically helped to train people. And it was exactly the same but virtual in the way that we did it. So always understanding that interplay between mm-hmm. online and offline is super critical. Mm-hmm. Um, same experience with Away when we started. We worked with one bank and one channel. It was mainly customers of Access Bank that we started by working with. And then as we grew, it would then we, bu- we built our brand in such a way that people felt more comfortable coming directly to us as mm-hmm. opposed to through the bank. Mm-hmm. But understanding that, look, there's already an account officer with a relationship with this customer, and we can work through that account manager instead of just selling them something over the internet, mm-hmm. understanding that was critical to our rapid growth. Mm-hmm. As so a company.
1: would you say that like just building trust is the critical Yes, critical factor in building both these like hybrid type of um, communities.
0: Exactly, building trust and we've tried that even with our business when we started out you know we just did online we put articles, we sent newsletters then we started doing these parties where when we get to a new city, we're just like, hey, come out and party with us tonight. And then people started to meet each other and Mm. say, oh, we're interested in the same things and Mm. business relationships will come out of that, investment Mm. conversations, so Mm. on and so forth. So just building that trust between people, online and offline, is critical. So you can't think of them as two separate things. Mm. you got to think of them as one.
1: Cool. Okay, so you've touched a little bit on the offerings that Future Africa provides. and You talked about how you transitioned from being like this kind of media platform to being more like an investment type platform. Yeah, early, right? early
0: stage investment. Early
1: stage okay. investment. So from a, again, from this governance or architecture perspective, would you say that this transition was driven by a top-down or bottom-up approach? What I mean is that did the transition emerge from conversations that took place from, from the community itself yeah, yeah. or from just like your personal ambitions or the ambitions of you and your um, team?
0: I'll say both. Like we, early in, early in the process, we, we were working with Erica, an amazing woman who basically built our community. And she had conversations with, I think about 200 members and just trying to find out like, what are you expecting from us? What do you want us to do for you? And the major points that came out were basically like, look, like, I'm starting a business, we knew most of our community were entrepreneurs. I want to understand what future perspectives are like, but I also need capital, I also need relationships, I also need to be able to break into this market, I need talent. And so we had to cuddle up those needs and then determine kind of where we go. But ultimately, like, we can't just think about what our community needs now. We also have to think about it from the point of view of what are we exactly trying to achieve. And for us, at the top level, if you want to call it that. The mind shift was basically that we were having these conversations but we're having these conversations without necessarily an action plan mm. right we were thinking that by the conversations people would know and that if people knew then they would do different things Somehow things, things will work. but we learned basically the hard way that like knowledge doesn't necessarily equate to action right people know but want to sometimes we don't do anything it. about it right <laughs> and so basically if we were going to basically bring out all these conversations that people were having to some kind of reality where we can test assumptions and see and learn. We had to get them to do do what they were trying to Mm do. Um, And we had to support them to be able to do that. And so for us, our long-term vision is how do we bring about a world where prosperity and purpose is within everyone's reach, not how do we talk about a world where prosperity and purpose is within (laughs) everyone's reach. So from a vision perspective, we then had to say, okay, what's our best path? And while we still have the conversations happening, well, why can't we what support can we some of those action? conversations right. becoming reality? Because then we're one step closer to the our vision. To
1: the vision. Interesting. So we're going to switch gears a bit and talk about an interesting proposition that you wrote about this mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. on the design of a talent city. Yeah. And I think the way we think about it, like people could argue that a city is a community, right? Yeah, it is. And we understand that there might be some overlap in the expertise needed to build a community, which is what you've done yeah. over the course of your years, career, yeah. or a building a talent city. Yeah. Um, but what we want to do is like revert to first principles of and course. ask you, what is the idea? What is a city? Is it based on scale? Is it size? Is it um, stakeholder involvement? Is it like economic activities? At what point would you say you've developed a city?
0: So the way we think about a city is a city is the economy and people and the interactions that happen between them. So if you think about what is Lagos, right? Lagos is the business capital of Nigeria, right? Because most of the people who are here are business people and their business is making sure there is money. And so the entire city thinks in terms of cash, right? In terms of how much money is this going to make? It's the, it's not for any reason that it's also the largest IGR grossing state and a lot of economic activity has to come to Lagos at some point or the other, right? Mm. The city is basically the relationship between the people and its economy is cash, (laughs) right? You go to Abuja, Abuja is a city, but Mm -hmm. Abuja is a city of government, right? Mostly Mm -hmm. public servants and contractors to government. And the relationship between the people and the economy around it is government. So it runs differently, it has different imperatives, people have different conversations. Most of the city is happy to live kind of, you know, civil servant lifestyles and politicians basically dominate the metropolis. And so it's a different interaction. Now, what we're trying to do with our city is say, what would happen if an entire city's relationship to its economy was innovation okay. and technology,
1: okay.
0: right? What would that city look like? And you have to think about that as designing that city And the people in it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. So you can't have business interests come to the talent city that we're building. Because it's not built around the business interests. It's built around the talent that's focused on innovation and design and technology. So that's how we think about a city.
1: So what what then is innovation in that context? Because is it just a... It's just a fancy city with like high tech. We, well, really I imagine about that you have the, to apply the innovation to some kind of business. Of you know? course. And
0: the idea basically primarily is that, you know, the innovation that happens there um, is digital, completely digital. doesn't show, right? It's not a place that will be famous for its markets, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Lagos is famous for its markets mm-hmm. because it's a commercial nerve center, mm-hmm. maybe for its ports, mm-hmm. uh, maybe for its transportation system. We're not going to be famous for any of those things. We're going to be famous as an idea as a place where if you're looking to build a great company, you want to situate here. And if you think about the U.S. as well, that's really what it is, right? Like you think about New York. New York is known for Wall Street, right? Mm -hmm. Wall Street is where all the business happens, right? And that's it, right? You think about a city like D.C. D.C. and Maryland are known for government, and that's where the lobbyists and politicians live. Think about California, on the other hand. California is not known for you know, business or no, it, right? it's Hollywood yeah. and tech. Yeah. So all the input and output is about the people who live there and what they produce. And most of what they produce is intellectual property. Mm-hmm. It's not physical. That's why you don't have any, like, crazy monuments to anything mm-hmm. in California. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A few nice places to go, but, you know, but it's like the weirdest tourist city in the world, right? It's like... Yeah, you can go to Facebook, Stamboa. <laughs> like, that's watch super people walk. exciting. <laughs> that's super exciting. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, it's just not, if you come to California, I, used, I live in California, my family's still there. Okay. It's always a weird experience because they're like, oh, I'm coming to California. Where can I go? And they're like, yeah, well, you if, you know, if, if you know people at Facebook, maybe <laughs> we can go visit them. You know, if you know people at Google, you yeah. can go. But there's nothing to really to see, see, right? right. Like right. there's not attraction because that's not what people do there you go to los angeles there's nothing to see like yeah, yeah you can go it's, to compton i hear there's I mean, a lot of traffic I there's traffic there. <laughs> yeah there's uh too. there's hollywood sign <laughs> you take a picture beside it. but there's nothing like you're going there to see yeah. you know what i mean there's yeah. no like hollywood boulevard yeah. thing you're going there to see yeah it's just like relationships and people
1: yeah right? so would the end goal for you with the town city really just be like i don't know like a silicon valley for
0: yeah example? i think mean, what we're trying to build is really kind of like the innovation and technology nerve center of the country that's where we want to build up to. Okay. And I think for us also we're thinking in distributed terms. So while we will start in one place, the goal is actually to spread that around the country. Because mm-hmm. I think that's the difference between us in America. It's like America kind of centralized things in one place. I don't think we have that luxury. I think we'll have to be very judicious in the ability to transplant these communities across mm-hmm. multiple places. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, interesting. So in terms of design of a town city, we yeah. think that there could be three models, mm-hmm. right? So the first is taking- I you're
0: giving me free consulting. <laughs> I'm so happy. Thank you, PwC. You're
1: welcome. That's what we do. We're very
0: kind. Yeah, you're to follow through on this, you know,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, we we're very kind. We will think of it. We're very kind. Okay, so the first model is, you know, you take a sparsely populated piece of land yeah. and you develop it in terms of like an extension or yeah. an expansion of a city. If you think about like eco-Atlantic yeah. or what happened with Hong Kong. Yeah. The second model is regenerating or modernizing an area. If you kind of think about reconstructing tejo Show market, for example, or what happened with Shenzhen in China. Or the third is in a non-boundary zone and benefit from already existing infrastructure. If you think about like a university, like these tech hubs that pop up on university campuses. Where on these three models does your talent city fit?
0: I think it's going to be a mix of a bunch. I mean, I can't share some details, but we're very close to like our inaugural talent city. Okay. And the, the idea basically is to take a brownfield development that okay. has the right kind of infrastructure existing okay. and work out a long-term agreement with the owners okay. um, in order to basically bring in a fresh kind of tenant mm-hmm. who is then able to like extend the resources that are there as well as attract the right kind of talent for us to now seed the place. Mm -hmm. Um, And then over time, by virtue of this tenant being there, you create other similar Mm -hmm. kinds of tenants and then you start to build a cluster. So that's really our approach, right? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily going to be one of all three. It's going to be a mix of all three. And Mm -hmm. then as we evolve to become a network, a distributed network across Nigeria, each place would have a different kind of bent depending on what it wants to focus on. Mm -hmm. But I think for our inaugural talent city, what we're really driving at is specifically the market for large-scale technology talent. Okay. So you know, as someone who's run a technology talent business, I know a practical concern a lot of large-scale technology providers have is basically Lagos is essentially too expensive for them to build a mm-hmm. real technology talent base. Even the banks, you know, that we have conversations with, they're saying, "Look, I can't scale a technology team in Lagos. It's way too expensive." Mm-hmm. At the same time, we know technology talent is scarce. Technology talent can work remotely, but they do care a lot about quality of life and mm-hmm. about being around their peers. Mm-hmm. Technology talent cares a lot about the infrastructure, fiber. Which Lagos, quite you know, the, Lagos was. is terrible <laughs> in that respect. I was um, kinder than you. We're just I don't have area. to be kind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, there is an opportunity to build in a solid base the right kind of experience for the kind of talent we want to attract. But what it requires is for us to find an anchor tenant that's willing to come in there, and by coming in there, would extend what exists in that space.
1: And what would be the attraction for that anchor talent? So, there's a lot of
0: interesting things about how Nigeria is structured that make an, a talent city a great option for an anchor tenant. So, first of all, it's thinking very much through kind of tax. Right? <laughs> so Nigeria has a lot of SEZ zones and we're gonna be located within an SEZ zone. Okay. And so the idea the attraction obviously would be look, I have the opportunity to do my company tax exempt, you know, I can repatriate my dollars, ETC, ETC. Those are very, very strong attractions for a company that's kind of seeing Nigeria as a hundred year mm-hmm. market. Another thing that's also very important for a lot of these companies is the ease within which they can bring in talent. It's super important for them. People don't often think about that as mm-hmm. a barrier, but if you've ever done the TWP visa, the temporary work permit visa, it's a ridiculous process and takes six months. So if you have um, an administrator who can fast track that process for you in a a matter of days and make it super easy for you, it's right. Mm -hmm. Then there's other interesting things that people kind of find interesting, ecological benefits you know people like a lot of green people don't think about it as an incentive but the truth of Illegal. the matter is the kind of talent that we're looking at are people who like to like feel like they're hiking on weekends and stuff like that yeah you know?
1: but w- where where would they do this uh, that's
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you CIA. you're not getting that out of me um but you hear about it soon but okay. basically you know like yeah, we, we're looking for a place that has the ecological and historical perspective where people can feel like, you know, where you know... It's uh, like is
1: not Lagos. Huh? Yeah.
0: It definitely <laughs> is not Lagos. Like I can tell you right now on the mic, it is not going to be Lagos. Um, and, and that's at the anti, what we're looking for. We're really trying to compete with Lagos here. We love Lagos. Lagos is a fantastic commercial nerve center. But if you're thinking about more innovation and creative talent, Lagos is not particularly the most attractive place it's one place that i would liken it to but it's not conducive for security reasons it's like joss mm-hmm. like joss is the most beautiful place it is. in this country it's, an, it's amazing period right but um i've been there but you can't yeah, you, you can't, can't go to joss it. right so think about what would just look like it you know if it was Southwest. in the south south oh yeah <laughs> 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 Done.
1: <laughs> I feel like, na- I feel like uh, we've narrowed it down a lot. Yeah,
0: we are definitely. I think we mentioned in our initial press release that the place is going to be in the southeast, but we're not saying more than that. Uh,
1: okay, I think I know. I won't talk about it, Sha. <laughs> so, so, in terms of governance, uh, let's consider a city like Lagos, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, an interesting piece of research done by the Heinrich Ball Foundation yeah. notes how Lagos, despite being a mega city, doesn't operate like other major cities which have mayors or yeah. devolved decision-making bodies, right? Yeah. And it remarks that Lagos is more driven by market, is an attractive place for investors yeah. rather than by the needs of the people that live within the community. So from the perspective of governance, what structures will be in place for your town city? And how is it different from the structures we have in place for existing free trade zones, for yeah. example?
0: So what is amazing is our ability to convert the free trade zone structure to what works for the community that we're trying to build. So with a free trade zone, it's mostly governed by something called a zone authority as opposed to by a government. And so you can actually create your own rules Mm -hmm. within the bounds of the NEPSA law Mm -hmm. within your free trade zone. So they can kind of operate on slightly different laws Mm -hmm. and process than, than others. And our goal is really to build a council of the kind of innovative partners and anchor tenants and individuals that we want to attract and have them advise us on what makes sense Uh within the zone now obviously there's specific things about tastes that we have to consider just being tech people ourselves so for example in our city everybody has to be captured day one like we're never going to allow anybody who's just rolling around there's going to be obviously a lot of facial recognition and advanced technology that's built into the security systems to make sure that everybody's monitored mm-hmm. no matter what you're doing mm-hmm. <laughs> and you make sure that we're keeping everyone safe so it's a little creepy from a police state point of view yeah from but if like you really a care privacy point of view I don't want to people... live in our city <laughs> Yeah, I'm just being very clear and open with everybody about that, you know, but it's necessary because of the kind of stakeholders we work with to keep Mm -hmm. everybody safe. Mm -hmm. Another thing that obviously we're going to have to think very carefully about is one of the like preliminary requirements is that we have very fast internet connection. So we're literally going to pipe in a C-cable. Like that's the only way we can do it. Thankfully, we're close to one, so mm-hmm. you know that makes mm-hmm. our lives a lot easier. So the things we have to think about from that oh, perspective, mm-hmm. and then in terms of norms and laws and regulations, mm-hmm. really optimize around this goal mm-hmm. of maintaining a space that's friendly for innovation, mm-hmm. but at the same time, making sure there is safety
1: mm-hmm. and
0: um, there's some element of personal and collective justice in the way that we um, design the city. Mm-hmm. but again, the other side of it is also that it is for a certain class of person, right? Oh. Who will be comfortable and kind of... I think we'll get there. Yeah, so it's not no going to be a mixed-use city. Yeah. It's going to be expensive, but yeah. the beautiful thing is what we're trying to do And carefully design design linkages to a major town, which is about 20, 30 minutes from us. Okay. A capital city. And the idea would be to ensure that we have workers coming in and going out from there. There is actually some touch on the local community. In terms of our governance and design, we will not be a democratic state, that I can assure you. (laughs) But it will be more like, I like to call it corporate governance.
1: Right. right okay cool so you've talked about this innovation Chatter city mm-hmm. right exactly so considering that up. there are not that many recorded successful Chatter cities yeah. are there any practical alternatives that you could think about in terms of this talent
0: city what would a practical alternative look like that's my question okay <laughs> Well, I mean, it depends on how you're looking at it. You know, we see the charter city, especially because we perhaps more have more information than you and the viewers, as the most practical alternative, right? We're not going to be building a city from scratch. Okay. Uh, so that's not happening. <laughs> We're not going to be changing any laws, per se. We're going to be operating under SEZ rules. I mean, when you think about the project plan, it's not really like a game changer. Yeah, but, but just... I guess
1: the point is that they really aren't that many successful charter cities so well, what, I think what would you do differently then
0: i think it's because of the purpose so even with the partner we're working with i think they tried to build a charter city of some sort like a free trade zone and all that and then what ended up happening was you know because they kind of focused their attention on a particular kind of trade that has barriers to it they failed mm-hmm. quite frankly And I think for us, because we're not really going to be doing that, I think we have a better chance of success because we're literally leveraging existing infrastructure and existing need. And none of those needs require additional government. You know, we can work within the existing frameworks. We're adapting the existing frameworks to fit our purpose rather than building brand, new, brand frameworks, new frameworks, which is how a lot of these guys feel, right? Mm. Because they're coming up starting with new from ideas, scratch
1: and... starting from
0: new ideas, you know, and, and I think that doesn't work. Right? Mm. I think you're better off. I mean, if what would have made Lagos work if I was thinking about it from 10 years ago was that the moment they identified a cluster in Yaba, there should have been a, a concerted effort to convert Yaba into proper, this type like, of town city, city, right? Into a proper charles city model, you know, make yeah. it a special zone which actually existing regulation allows them to do, but mm-hmm. I just think people got lazy and now it's irredeemable in some sense, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yaba is now too expensive mm-hmm. and, and, and too crazy for mm-hmm. anybody to want to actually take the effort and do it. Some people may actually still try, mm-hmm. but I think it will be very difficult now mm-hmm. as opposed to when we started in Yaba because then there was not much going on. So mm-hmm. it's just, the way I look at it is basically doing what should have been done, been done in Yaba correctly. Yeah, yeah, Okay,
1: that's nice. So in this next question I'm going to keep the topic on cities but but looking at it from the future Africa lens. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. as a f- fund so f- yeah, focus as on a the fund, funding yeah, part, right? Yeah. So as cities grow in economic activity, we tend to see and we expect increasing migration to these new cities, of right? Yeah. And we think that these increased migrations, obviously, and rapid urbanization come with their own challenges, they do. right? They do. So whether it's resource scarcity or just increased pressure yeah. for people to provide services to the booming population. Yeah. Right now, what we see in Nigeria is companies finding opportunities to solve existing problems, yeah. right? Are you seeing or how much are you seeing companies designed with a more medium to long term lens on these, I guess, more mega trend type challenges like resource scarcity or increasing pressure on services? Are you seeing people recreating thinking around like more medium long-term challenges and creating business opportunities around them or is everyone just focused on like now
0: i think what it is is an evolution and really kind of one of the values that we like to incorporate in our companies is the idea of thinking about the future right but understanding you have to start from where the the shoe pinches today (laughs) So for example, what you guys term mobility, I've seen some analysis of our portfolio, we call it mobility startups. We we term them city of the future startups, right? Which is like, how do you adapt existing challenges to build an ecosystem that can support this city with Um, the way people want it? And then get ahead of regulation or push the envelope a little bit so you mm -hmm. can get there faster. Mm So if you think about some of our investments like Max, Max is not an investment in mobility for us.
1: (laughs) Okay, what is it?
0: Max is an investment in this Lagos of the future, right? Like how would you design open mobility in in Lagos? It's not just about mobility, it's about logistics. It's about how do people move around in a city that has to remain fluid with narrow roads, right? Which are not going to change anytime soon just because you can't knock down that many people's properties, right? You try and pretend you're Dubai, but you weren't built that in mind. Yeah, I and mean, then how do you build a city in a way that provides work for people, right? That enables rich and poor to live side by side in a peaceful coexistence of some mm-hmm. sort, right? Mm-hmm. That moves quickly, right? A city that moves quickly. A city that is space-challenged, right? People forget. Lagos is just 110,000 so square small. meters. It's very, very small place. Very small. and you're going to see us make other investments in what people would look at as mobility businesses but we don't see as mobility businesses we see them as infrastructure for the city of the future
1: so to that point though Lagos has said that like these motorcycles are not a part of the plan of the Lagos city of the future so how do you
0: what we do basically at Future Africa is we design roadmaps for the future And then we invest in the companies that fit our roadmap Mm. so we're not like your typical investor who's fishing for ideas Mm. we know what we're looking for for. and we just wait for the company that either is willing to adapt to fit our roadmap for the future or is already implementing our roadmap for the future so you know we know what the roadmap of the future of lagos looks like and bikes are a key part of it Mm. they're not going nowhere and we've looked at other cities and how they've evolved from Beijing other mega cities that have had tokyo Mm -hmm. they always pretend this is not going to happen but it never does it's either going to be bikes or electric bikes or some variation some variation of short term you know transport that is very fluid right and it's not going to be mass transit in nigeria Mm -hmm. anytime soon that's the reality yeah you don't have a subway system so that even increases pressure on this so i'm not very very much bothered about it i think Bikes are a key part. Now, there are real conversations to be had. You know, There's a security challenge with the bikes. There is a health mm-hmm. and safety challenge with the bikes. There's an identity challenge with the bikes. These are platforms. These are opportunities for the government to put in place some common sense regulation. And we're willing to work with the government on that and say, how can we make this bike situation, which none of us likes but have to live with, right. work for you? Right. right, Raise revenue for you. Mm-hmm. Create safety for your citizens. Mm-hmm. Create real transport alternatives for your citizens. If that's a conversation government wants to have, we're realists. We're ready to have that conversation. We're ready to fund that conversation.
1: Okay, so th- this conversation we already kind of started earlier, but something that um, tends to happen when like this innovation and this migration start to happen at the micro level is this segregation, right?
0: Absolutely. It's part uh, of the so challenge. for
1: example, it's, you know, it's prevalent even at even in Silicon Valley where there are disconnects between the average population and this like a- this growing tech community, Absolutely. right? So what is Future Africa's strategy to avoid building concentrated communities of tech elites and investing in startups, even, whose products may lean towards digital natives or already connected populations? Yeah.
0: So, I mean, for us, it comes back to a question of mission. And this is why it has to be both bottom up and top down. There is a model where we become very profit focused and then we're just focused on how do we make more money? How do we make more money? But that's not our mission, right? We're not even focused on profit. As we say, our vision of the future is really a future where everyone, right, has prosperity and purpose within their reach, right, so they live in a life of prosperity, they can make decent living, they have a life of purpose, they like what they're doing and they like where they are in life, regardless of where, where they are. And they can move if they if they feel, you know, they have the opportunities to move up and down the social value chain, right, without uh, a detrimental impact on their quality of life. So for us, that's our North Star. So we continually shape our companies in that, along that North Star. And that's why, you know, I was having a conversation the other day, you know, the government was very surprised about what for a company like Max does for its riders, because mm-hmm. we we're like, why would you provide insurance, health insurance, pay them on the Like this is a lot. And we're insisting that all the other players abide by that for coming back on the roads because we feel this is what's best for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like, wow, that's crazy. That's gonna be crazy cost like look, this is people's lives. If the least we can do is make sure that in the event any freak accident happens, they we have a Some way of ensuring of like they have that yeah, they don't yeah. die. They don't, they don't die, their families are not suffering. Right. And that's what it means, right? So for us, you know, our approach really is we want companies that are in that direction. We want companies that are doing business, not just with ethics, but with a view of the future where they're providing opportunity for everyone. And no matter who you are, when you come to meet us, we're always interested in hearing that side of the story.
1: So do you have a framework that guides that process, how you measure the company's view of like enabling other communities, I guess?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, we build roadmaps for the future (laughs) for all our businesses. And a lot of our roadmaps are, are focused really because that's where the future is going on. How do we quote unquote, devolve the privileges of privilege (laughs) to the rest of the population. So even if you look at our wealth management portfolio of companies, we've done that successfully by saying the same assets that your politician or your big bank executive has in the US you know, our customers you, yeah. should be able to invest in those mm-hmm. same assets without mm-hmm. need for a family office or mm-hmm. having a conversation with whoever. Mm-hmm. And then that's our goal, right? So we have a roadmap of the future that takes this into account. And what we try and do is steer companies into, into our roadmap of the future. So that's our framework, really. Mm-hmm. We're not using measurement because mm-hmm. the problem with measurements in general is that people just optimize for the wrong things. Mm-hmm. It's not about a vision of the future. It's about meeting some number or mark. And so we don't think that way. we don't think in those type of frameworks. We think, look, this is the future. How we do? This we is where we're going. You, right? either, you
1: either aligned to it
0: or Well, people usually align to it because it just makes the most sense, right? And because we come in so early in a company's life, we really kind of, We have an opportunity to shape those conversations and that pattern of thinking. Mm-hmm. because we, we come in very early. We bring in the new investors. So we also look for investors that are aligned to our kind of thinking. So that kind of helps do it it's more adaptive approach to mm-hmm. doing it rather than using some esg or graphic <laughs> framework that doesn't really make sense right cool
1: <laughs> okay so when we think about technologies that model the idea of community design and governance mm-hmm. the blockchain comes to mind
0: yeah blockchain is interesting
1: are you learning anything from the blockchain world that could have an interesting application to the design of the future africa community or the talent city
0: well there are things we're learning Um, But I think one thing that we try to emphasize to our portfolio companies and our communities is that blockchain is a tool.
1: As is every technology. As is every
0: technology. (laughs) So the idea of kind of designing with blockchain front and center makes about as much sense as designing with Python front and center. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is not mean Mm -hmm. shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean Mm -hmm. to us, right? Mm -hmm. So... Our approach is more of, look, we have interesting approaches where blockchain makes sense. So for example, we work with a company that's still getting into our portfolio in the process of, of processing, where they focus on helping private landowners to be able to map land registry okay. within their private land. One of the stories they told me that made me like absolutely get it was apparently they, they were talking to EcoAtlantic. And it turns out that like the EcoAtlantic guy was there and they were in this kind of, Foreign conference, and somebody walks up and says, Hey, I just bought land in the Atlantic. Now the guy's like, well, to... I, I should know everybody, but like, what's your name? And the guy's like, My name is XYZ. And it's like, No, I've never received money from you. And like, literally on the spot, they discover that they've just been swindled like dollars. <laughs> so I'm like, Yeah, yeah, yeah this is this exactly is why you need blockchain. You need a solution right now. So, so basically what they do is they work with state governments and so on, um, private landowners to map out, like, the land mm-hmm. so that you don't have this. And even personally, like, I buy up a lot of land in Yaba because mm-hmm. that's where I live. And mm-hmm. I'm still working on my secret plan to take over Yaba. But like basically...
1: City 2.0. We'll see. Right
0: <laughs> <there>. <laughs> but basically, we've had a challenge with regularizing paperwork because of boundaries like it's like oh we go there like one time they tell us oh your land boundaries are eating into somebody else's land and then we go there a the second time and they tell us the same thing and who knows whether they're right or wrong mm-hmm. but if this land had been pre-mapped right. we would literally just have one-time transaction and right. pay all the fees and go mm-hmm. so there are used, yeah, applications that mm-hmm. we see that are very very clear right. but we don't think of it as a one-size-fits-all thing it's mm-hmm. really dependent on what we're trying to achieve
1: okay yeah. uh, but on a personal level are there any applications of the blockchain other emerging technologies that you find interesting Oh yeah i
0: just talked about one right yeah. land, land rights property rights that's definitely going to be one another one um okay um i mean we're very excited about ml
1: okay. machine learning okay. and its okay.
0: applications here especially in the healthcare space
1: okay
0: i think we have we hold a very unpopular opinion that we don't need doctors they can all go to canada
1: oh okay can you, um, <laughs> I, I want to I, I, I'm very interested in <laughs> hearing more about this perspective. Yeah, I
0: think that Nigerian doctors are getting very arrogant, and that's okay. But I feel like there is a dying numbers of professionals that's just too expensive for us to maintain. right? And uh, what you're going to see happen over the next 10 years is more frontline healthcare workers that mm-hmm. may not be doctors, the the doctors but assisted right. by machine learning and, and other kinds of future-forward technology can be as good as doctors especially on the diagnostics front. Because I think, like, what does a doctor really do? People are coming for your head. Or... I know, I know, I know. <laughs> People come for my head all the time. Did you hear anything about me before they said to me? So I hold, I hold that private opinion. I don't, think, I don't think that doctors leaving the country is going to be bad for everybody. I think we'll need some really good doctors, but they would find enough value in staying back because they can play the role of, like, 15 doctors because right. they're technology-assisted. Right. And when we really need expert opinion, then we bring them in
1: cool i like that so you just kind of made a very interesting prediction about doctors in nigeria interesting so speaking of predictions what was the last one you got wrong
0: oh definitely i've gotten a lot of predictions wrong i think the most the worst one i would argue was this the current government like not not really like like a current government i just thought there would be more youth participation in this government and there hasn't been I thought, you know, the vice president would have a real handle on bringing in the right young people to kind of, you know, give us a role. And I think it's been a mix between not having the right positioning in government or not having the right authority and also not having the right people.
1: What guided that prediction for you? What were you seeing when you thought that?
0: What I was seeing was a lot of interest from the opposition at the time in engaging young people in this campaign. But what I hadn't realized was they were looking at us as clientele, not stakeholders, hmm. right? So vendors are clients, not stakeholders. Hmm. And, and so that, that went badly, right? And now we've learned the lesson, which is, look, if you want to participate in government, you got to be there as a stakeholder. You yeah. can't just be the guys who come by support just and like do the your face, work. The, you cool know, face the cool face of the campaign. You're just whitewashing the campaign. No, you got to be there from the get-go, picking candidates, be, being power brokers blocking things sometimes being an asshole like yeah, yeah. but you know being a stakeholder don't just be a uh, participant there's a big difference yes. i think <laughs> young you know, people like, need to learn yeah. that so, as well so i think that was probably the biggest one i got wrong most of the others are kind of in pleasant misses in the sense that like every time we start a company we think it's going to take 10 years for it to get to some level of scale i thought it was going to take 10 years for us to break the banking industry in nigeria at flutterwave it took us two and a half years to basically turn everybody to a fintech advocate, that, that was super fast. I thought it would take us eight years to get to a billion dollars in funding. It took us uh, just a couple of years. I thought it would take us 20 years for us to get to top 100 uh, most innovative um, cities in the world. So it took us less than seven years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like.
1: Okay. Um What's one view you seem to find very few people agree with you on?
0: There's like, so many. <laughs> like, like I mean, literally, I'm, I'm a walking contrarian, right? Like, I don't even know where you want to start from. Speak one. Oh, man. There's just just a lot, you know. There's just a lot. And, you know, it's really funny because it's always an evolution of your thinking about where the world is going and where things are going. I think the one that most people kind of look at me a little funny on now is, like, I deeply believe that all the new innovation that's relevant in the world over the next 50 years will come from Africa. Okay. And people just look at me like, okay, you're clearly... Crazy, but that's fine. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see.
1: I think in 50 years we'll be here to test. Yeah, to test whether it works. Yeah, (laughs) but I'm
0: like literally, if it doesn't come from Africa, the whole world's going down with us. So, okay, cool. Cool.
1: (laughs) So, our previous interviewee, Kingsley Uduakwan from Merck, has a question for you. He'd like to know your perspective or experience with remote work in a city like Lagos. Have you done any? measurements on the impact of remote work on employee productivity especially in this day of like the okada ban coronavirus yeah.
0: everything so i've done some i mean we've done quite a bit of remote work. i mean as you know andela which was my first successful company was is very much about remote work i think people are actually looking for cost savings in the wrong places when they talk about remote work okay um like okay so i'll give you a perspective of a company i don't want to name but like basically you know companies are renting out places like this, like this office where, hey, $750 per square meter, $500 per square meter. And then all of a sudden you realize, okay, my employees don't need to come in every day so I can use half the space, i.e. I've doubled my utility. Mm-hmm. I don't have to expand to a new office, which is an operational nightmare for any organization right. in Nigeria. Right. Because then you're, you're, you have two risk points as mm-hmm. opposed to one mm-hmm. if my people work like two three times a week and they just have hot desks i can like better extend my stuff and and basically i honestly think of it as a cost cutting measure mm-hmm. unlike other people are thinking about as an innovation thing okay. <laughs> it's just like it's really expensive forget okada band, blah 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 like it's just expensive more and more expensive to rent to space. rent space so and like, there are less and less spaces so, just, so let people, just work from let home. people work from home and save your rent money. <laughs> Cut it by half. What people don't understand is look, at the end of the day, there's certain elements of our company's revenue that's tied to how many yeah, people of we course, hire. Of course. And that means more real estate, and that means more fixed costs, and that means more. I mean, if you're doing the math, you literally can be profitable by simply cutting your office space by half. <laughs> hmm.
1: Hmm.
0: So, I don't know. People think of this as going to be like, like Okada Ban, and I'm looking at it like, okay, well, that's all nice and good because uh, who wants to stress their employees yeah. but quite frankly you can save a lot of money by just having your employees use their own rental real estate
1: right so just like people work, to work home. yeah to work for you
0: right? Okay.
1: <laughs> so last question disruption is interrelated so in that respect what's one perspective you'd like to get from our next interviewee
0: i mean who's the interviewee it's uh, you, we don't know that's oh, the problem you, you I actually don't know, what...
1: know it's endeavor aloha
0: oh endeavor hmm, that's interesting i think for me i'm really interested she started a very interesting conversation the other day about about the need for large-scale companies basically in order to drive the kind of returns and i think my question to her is is it possible to build those companies midstream because Mm -hmm. my experience has been that if you don't start Start. with the companies in the Mm -hmm. first 90 days you never really get those type of companies and even when you start with them there's always the risk of what i would call vision shifts like Mm. you could very well start with a company and it's happened to me many times that has a big vision wants to be a big company and then midstream they just kind of get tired of Mm. like pushing against all the walls that are required to be pushing
1: against nigeria against
0: nigeria and then the question is well if you now start midstream with a company aren't you more or less likely to end up with a bunch of companies that really just are pretending to be big so they can pocket the spoils of being big mm. and getting government supports i mean mm. there's so many examples of nigerian entrepreneurs the monument to large company support in nigeria is amcon 5.2 mm. trillion dollars of money wasted by the elites mm. right mm-hmm. all the business people we claim to support mm. literally took our money and, ran, and away.
1: ran with it right
0: so for me mm-hmm. i'm like is it possible for you to build these companies midstream because people can look like a big company but not but really, really not act like one right or do you really have to go to the grassroots i want to get a counter argument because my belief is personally that look there's no way to build these companies except you, start, you start from, from scratch. scratch
1: okay <laughs> okay so what we want to know from her is what's her perspective does yeah. she think what does she think right well what
0: she's i mean we, we both agree on one thing you need innovation driven enterprises i.e., right. companies that grow big very fast
1: yeah
0: right to be able to build an economy you can't build an economy on small and medium businesses mm-hmm. we agree you never can you build an economy on dangotes we agree right That's so right. what is the best way to build these companies mm-hmm. by supporting companies that quote-unquote clear a specific stage or by starting with people focused on specific kind of challenges i take the view that It's people starting from specific kind of challenges with an ambition to grow. And
1: then grow with them.
0: Grow with them. Um, I want to hear what her perspective and argument is about supporting only big companies. Because that's my problem with Endeavor. Uh. And I've mentioned that to her many times. Like, look, you're with big men supporting big companies. But none of these companies, I think... Well, let me not say they don't but like basically i have challenges with their vision right like i don't know how they're going to become bigger like i want to understand how are they going to grow beyond the point they are in mm. and do they really have an ambition to do that or are they just just content and can live? they even do that And can they do that right are they set up to do that are you checking to make sure they're ready to do that mm. um yeah basically
1: cool well that's it thank you for joining us on this episode hey thanks for coming you're welcome